Savior taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this afternoon, uh, if you've been with us for some time, either online or in person, uh, it's good to have you all here with us. But we will be now leaving, departing from the Olivet Discourse that we've been in the last few weeks. And so the passage we'll be studying together this morning, Luke 21, beginning in verse 37, we'll be going down through chapter 22, verse 13. You can find that, uh, most copies of the ESV, you can find that on page 881. Now, over the last, really, two years that we've been in the Gospel of Luke, or even the last few months, if you can remember, uh, it might feel like we're beginning to come to the climax. We're getting to uh, the climax of the story. You may recall from Luke chapter 9, now I know that it has been a while since we've been in Luke chapter 9, I had to look it up. That was in November and December and January of 2019 and 2020. So for nearly a year, we've been studying Christ as he's had his face set towards Jerusalem, as he has been determined to come to the cross and do this work on the cross. We've been studying this for nearly a year, so we're coming again to the climax, coming to the cross. And so the past several weeks, we've seen Jesus uh, teaching in the temple after the triumphal entry. Lord willing, we'll see that uh, almost as Gandalf said in Return of the King, that things are now in motion that cannot be undone. Uh, and I probably misquoted that, so forgive me if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. But we're coming to the culmination of his teaching. We're coming to the culmination of Jesus' ministry. But before he goes to the cross, there are a few pieces that still have to be put in place. And this morning, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at a few of those pieces and hear what the Lord has to teach us this morning. So here now from Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
and he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word as we study it together. Now, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the movie Gladiator. I can't commend all the parts of this movie to you, but I think it will help to illustrate uh, part of what's going on in the text. Uh, it's the story of a Roman general turned gladiator, Maximus, the, the hero of the story. He was a friend and an ally to the emperor Marcus Aurelius, but Marcus was betrayed by his son Commodus, and only Maximus really knew of that treachery. So Maximus flees as Commodus takes over the empire, and soon enough, Maximus finds himself captured by slavers and sold to a gladiator school. Now, as a Roman general, he's quite adept at fighting. And so he's put into the ring, and he just kind of keeps on winning. Soon enough, he uh, becomes one of the most famous gladiators in the entire Roman Empire. But he's not using his name, so no one really knows who he is. Well, his fame reaches Commodus, who's hosting uh, a big festival, big gladiator contest in Rome in the Colosseum. So Commodus eventually wants to meet this famed gladiator. And so to his surprise, he's, he's dumbstruck when he goes down into the arena and meets Maximus, his enemy, still alive that he can't believe. So Commodus sets his mind to find a way to kill Maximus in the arena. He puts the best gladiators out there. He throws wild animals into the ring, tigers, right? And he even throws a small army against his group of friends and gladiators there. But every enemy that comes, Maximus defeats. And I'm sure you all know of the decisions that would happen in the arena, this thumbs up, thumbs down, when a gladiator was defeated. And it was up to the emperor whether that gladiator would, would live or die. So Maximus has defeated another enemy, and the emperor gives the signal that he should kill him, and Maximus refuses. This is an act punishable by, by death. He refuses, he turns his back on the emperor, but he is so popular, and the crowd loves Maximus so much, he's such a great fighter, that they begin shouting, Maximus the Merciful. And the emperor can do nothing, because he's trying to gain the popularity of the people by hosting these festivals, so he can't now go kill their favorite gladiator. So finally, Commodus wants another meeting. He goes and meets Maximus face to face. He says, what am I going to do with you? You simply won't die. So as we come to our text this afternoon, we see the priests and the scribes faced with a similar problem. They cannot find a way to kill Jesus. He has grown so popular that killing him publicly or arresting him while he's in the temple teaching uh, isn't an option. The crowd would riot, and the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees would all lose control. So as we move forward in the passion narrative, we're going to see the crowd be a factor in several ways like this, that the people are going to uh, influence decisions of, of Pilate. Uh, they're going to influence the lives of, of Jesus and Barabbas, and certainly even Peter falls to some pressure of the crowd. So part of what we're going to see in this passage is the priests, Judas, and the other leaders, they're fearing the crowd. 
They're fearing man and not trusting in the Lord, not believing in God. So we ought to take a warning from them. But however, uh, we're going to see the trustworthiness of the Lord as well. So that's our outline this morning. The, the fear of man, the fear of the crowd, and trust in the Lord. So you'll notice that our text begins with Jesus teaching in the temple. Even in the early morning, people came to hear him. Now Luke adds to this by, by noting that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, is coming. Passover is almost here. It's this very week. So each year, as they did each uh, Passover festival, people would come in droves, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. De- devout Jewish people would come to, to sacrifice, to uh, hear prominent teachers of the law. This was a common practice. It happened each year. So as the crowds gather and they're growing larger with each passing day as, as Passover approaches, the scribes and the Pharisees are seeing just how popular Jesus has become. So the, the priests, they hear his teaching just as they have for a few years. Make no mistake, they know what Jesus has been preaching. The Pharisees and the scribes have heard it as well. So they decide again. They've decided several times, and it's, it's been in all of the Gospels, that they decided to put Jesus to death. But this time, they're, they're pretty firm on it. They want to find a way to put him to death in the absence of a crowd. So what's the motivation that Luke assigns to them, that Luke tells us, why do they want to do this? Well, it says they fear the people. Well, why is this? So let's, let's take some of what Scripture says, some different places, put it together so we can understand what the priests and, and the scribes and the Pharisees, what they're thinking, what their motivation is. They had heard him claim to be God. Though Jesus, in Scripture, he never comes out and says, I am God, he does certainly make that claim. In fact, in Luke 5, uh, he says to a lame man, your sins are forgiven. And there's kind of an uproar about it. And he says, so that you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. Jesus then tells him to stand up and walk. The Son of Man, this reference to Daniel 7, that's, that's claiming to be the Messiah, that's claiming to be God. Make no mistake about it, that is absolutely what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the Messiah, and I have authority to do this. So they'd heard him make this claim. And if they're right that it's blasphemy, which, of course, it's not blasphemy because he is God and he can make that claim, but if they're right that it's blasphemy, then, yes, he ought to be put to death. That's what the law says. Now, another motivation may have been uh, expectations of the Messiah, They wanted some militant leader, some King David-type figure who would come and and defeat Rome and uh, give autonomous control back to Israel. And after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, the people want to take Jesus by force and make him king. So he quietly slips away from them. Jesus uh, could have let that situation play out and see if they could have actually made him king by force. But recall what he says to Pilate, that his kingdom is not of this world. That's not who Jesus is. He's not that military leader that they wanted. So after seeing other miracles of Jesus, uh, the priests gather the, the council, the Sanhedrin, they gather the council in John 11 and talk about how if they allow Jesus to continue doing these signs, if we continue to allow him 
to preach, then the Romans will come and take away our nation and our place. That phrase is interesting. They'll take away our nation and our place. See, when Rome takes over, they make a country pledge loyalty to Rome. And if you do that, Rome is quite content to let you keep doing whatever you want. As long as you pay your taxes, they're quite content for you to keep being an individual. But if uprisings happened, then the Romans would send their armies and crush that rebellion, and they would lose their nation. What little identity they might have left, they'd lose it. They'd also lose the temple. They'd lose their status. They'd lose their political and religious influence. They'd lose their own power and control if they allow Jesus to go on like this. So we look at their motivations. We see that they're all just totally self-centered, totally man-centric and not focused on the Lord, not trusting in the Lord. And in some way, we can understand their, their motivation in the blasphemy category, wanting to protect and preserve their, their doctrine, the teachings there. But they're reading scripture with their own eyes, not with the trust in the Lord that they ought to have. They ignore the prophecies of scripture like Isaiah 53 that, uh, that he would be stricken for our afflictions. Right? That they've missed what the Lord was actually going to do through the Messiah. So they're looking at it totally through their own eyes and trusting themselves. And their desire for power and, po and, and political and, and religious clout is also self-serving and man-centered. So they seek a way to put him to death. But something's missing. They're, they're fearing the crowd. They don't know how to keep the people on their side and they don't know how the crowd might react if they were to arrest Jesus. So enter Judas. Or perhaps we should say Satan into Judas, rather. Uh, look back at verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how they might betray him, how he might, excuse me, how he might betray him to them. At last, this is the insider. This is the traitor they've been waiting for. Here is the way that the leaders in Israel might deal with what they would consider the Jesus problem. They have a conspirator. They have someone in the trusted inner circle of Jesus. And not only that, he comes and just offers himself to them. So they have an insider to their plot. And they were happy about it. Verse 5, they were glad and agreed to give him money. Now think through the ramifications of that. They were glad and agreed to give him money. They're glad that they get to commit murder. Like, it's good to rejoice at justice when godly biblical justice is, is given out, is done, is enacted, is enacted. It's good to rejoice at that, but this is evil. They are rejoicing and glad at evil. These are the leaders, the ones who are supposed to know the law, who are supposed to be looking for Christ, who are supposed to be leading God's chosen people to seek the Messiah, and they're rejoicing in evil. But let's consider Judas for a moment. 
We don't know why he went away and conferred with the priests. We're not given his, his motivation. He doesn't seem like he's possessed. He's not uh, the demoniac at, at the tombs who no chain can bind him, and he's foaming at the mouth, and he's crazy and out of his mind. This is not what we see in Judas. There's a difference, one commentator uh, that I read this week, there's a difference between a thief breaking into your house and stealing and there's a parable about this. There's a difference in that and unlocking the door and opening it so that they might come in. So this is what Judas has done. He's unlocked his door and invited Satan in. His heart is aligned with the devil himself. Maybe it was his love of money. Most of the times when we see Judas in scriptures, there's some mention of money. He used to help himself to the money bags. He chastises the woman who anoints Jesus and says, we could have sold that perfume and given it to the poor. It could have been that. Scripture doesn't say. It just says that Satan entered into him. So he was greedy with the love of money, and we know that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But he's heard the same teaching as the other 11. He's been with Jesus. He's been sent out to preach by Jesus but his heart is not aligned with Christ. He's not trusting in the Lord the same way that the other 11 are. He's not listening to the words of Scripture. His heart is aligned with man. He's fearing man, fearing the devil. So I want us to consider for a moment what all, what all is happening around Judas. We prayed the Lord's Prayer earlier. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Now, in the question in the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, asking what do we pray for when we pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil? Well, the answer is, uh, it's a wonderful answer. I commend it to you. Go, go and read it when you get a chance. But it talks about uh, the devil, the flesh, and the world. The three sources of temptation we know from James that it's, it's our own desires that tempt us and test us. There are certainly temptations around us from the world, right? And so in Judas, we have his own, perhaps, greed, his own love of money, or maybe he thought he'd get some sort of, of status and stature from the council by, by going and helping them out. Perhaps that's what it was, but there's something inside of him that's tempting him and testing him and that he's falling to and betraying our Lord. Certainly he knew of the desire, I'm sure that Jesus knew and, and all of the disciples knew, of the desire of, of the leadership to put Jesus to death. So there's the temptation from the outside, from the world as well. And then you have Satan entering Judas himself. Now the last time that we saw Satan as a character in the book of Luke was at Jesus' temptation. You all know this, it's in Luke chapter 4 where he tempts him to turn stones into bread and, and others. But at the end of that, this is what Luke says about that incident. He says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So if you look back at verse 6 with me here, so he, that is Judas, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. So here we have Judas. He's got his own flesh 
the world and the devil working together in perhaps the most powerful way to do perhaps the most evil thing that's ever been done in history, to murder our Lord and Savior. So now, as the devil has been waiting for an opportunity, that moment is nearby. They know that it's coming. The enemy has his conspiracy complete. They have all the players in place. But what's the warning for us? Many of us, we know this story. If you've been in church for any time at all, you know that Judas betrays Jesus. Uh, We've heard this. So what do we glean from this? Well, the question is, who do you fear? And I don't mean who are you afraid of. You all know this. Uh, What's your motivator? Who is your heart aligned with? So we see in the priests in Judas that they don't fear God. They fear man. They fear the world. They are aligned with sin and against God. Now, at some point, uh, we will all face some sort of social pressure, some sort of outside pressure and temptation. Lord willing, it's not anywhere near what Judas was facing. But at some point, we will feel pressure from the outside and pressure from the inside. So where is your heart? Who do you fear? Hopefully it won't be a situation like Peter who denies even knowing Jesus, fearing the crowd, fearing the people around him. He denies even knowing who Jesus is. Hopefully it won't be like that. Or it might be to overlook something at your job and avoid the consequences of that situation, knowing that the right thing to do would to bring it up and to face whatever might come, but you tempted to overlook it because you don't want the reactions that people will have against you. Or perhaps someone's asking to cheat off your homework. That's an easy one. Sure, you can look over my shoulder. That's an easy one. Because you fear what might happen from the people. You fear what might happen from uh, the crowds or the bullies around you if you say no. But quiet your heart. Pray. Ask the Spirit to guide you. Ask that you not be led into temptation and be delivered from evil. Fear the Lord. It'll be easy to say no in those situations. No, you can't cheat off me. Yes, I'm going to report this. Yes, I know Christ. So who do you fear? As we come to a transition, away, away from Judas and, and the priests, uh, it's almost like a cutscene in a movie. Uh, the enemy's pieces are all set. We've had, we've had a time where we've looked at them. Now we're going to transition and look at Jesus' own preparations. So while they're done, and maybe Satan is so happy that he's got one of the 12 on his side, but Jesus isn't done making his final preparations either. So those preparations come with a comment from Luke that the day of unleavened bread has arrived, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now the word there, had to be, it's really, the word is necessary. It is a necessity that the lamb be sacrificed. And what a beautiful comment on both the ceremony of the Passover and of Christ himself, that it is necessary that the Passover lamb be sacrificed. It was necessary that Jesus go to the cross. It's part of the reason Christ turned to Scripture so many times to defeat the temptation of the devil, 
that temptation that he could provide for himself, that he could have all the kingdoms of the world if he would but bow down to Satan, or that he would throw himself from the temple. The temptation there is really that you can have all of this without the cross. But it is necessary that the Passover lamb be sacrificed. So it's in that necessity that Jesus understands what's coming that he begins his final preparations. He tells Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover meal. So they ask a logical question. Where will you have us prepare it? Well, Jesus answers, and it's, it's important that we catch what happens here because his answer is also a prophecy. We've just come out of the Olivet Discourse and we've heard Jesus' uh, many teachings on the things to come on the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Son of Man in glory again. Now these things, when Jesus was speaking them, they were to happen in the future. Didn't know when they would, but we have the benefit of history in knowing that the temple was destroyed and knowing when Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem. But now this prophecy, there is an immediate fulfillment he tells them to go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. He gives them incredibly detailed instructions of what to do and how to find a place to share this meal. Keep in mind the context the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, was happening. Droves of people are flocking to Jerusalem for the ceremony. One commentator estimated upwards of 200,000 people may have come to Jerusalem. There wasn't that much room in Jerusalem. The place is full. Now, when you go out of town, when I go out of town, you find a hotel. You book a hotel or an Airbnb and you need a place to eat, and so you look all of this up before you go. You make reservations. You don't just pull up to a hotel and say, hey, do you have any rooms? Especially if there's a big event going on in that city. Think Patriots on game day. You don't just get a hotel. You can't do it. Well, this is what Christ does. He tells them, go and find this man carrying a jar of water. It's a strange sight in and of itself, midday, someone carrying a jar of water that wasn't, wouldn't typically have been his job anyway. Strange sight. So Jesus then claims probably some of the honor that is rightfully due him. The teacher has need of your room. That's what he was. He was a teacher, a rabbi, prophet, a priest, and the king. Some of the honor that is rightfully due him, he uses here. It's all these strange little events and happenings. He says this to Peter and John, go, and they do. They go trusting the word of the Lord, trusting to find it, and they do, just as in our final verse, just as the Lord has told them. But that's the pattern all throughout scripture, isn't it? It's the, past, it's the pattern all throughout the gospels that the word of the Lord comes true. The word of Jesus comes true. He's been teaching that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and, and the Pharisees, and he'll be killed on the third day. He'll rise again. He's been teaching them this. He's done signs and wonders that point to him being the Christ, that show his compassion and his love for his people. He's done all of these signs. 
And even in John 6, he says, one of the 12, one of you, one of my disciples is a devil. Because he knows. And his time, excuse me, his word comes true time and time again. The things that Jesus says, the things that he teaches, comes to bear. He is trustworthy. We see the truth behind his very words. It's not just that he prophesied that he would die, and yes, he was raised again. It's not just that he says, go and find this this man, but that they come true, because he is a prophet. There's only one way to judge a prophet, and that's on whether his predictions come true, right? I'll be honest, I enjoy trying to make predictions. Uh, For a while, Meredith uh, and I were watching Star Trek. I know I'm a nerd, I've accepted it. We were watching Star Trek, and I grew up watching Star Trek. Uh, I know how the characters work, even if it's an episode I haven't seen or I, or I don't remember that episode. I'm, I'm usually pretty good at, at guessing what's going to happen and what characters are going to do what, because I've, I've watched it so many times. Well, we, we grew tired of that, and Meredith introduced me to a new show that she really likes, and I kept trying to do the same thing. I kept like, oh, this is going to happen, this character is going to do this. I was wrong every time because I don't know how the writers of that show are thinking. I don't know the characters, I don't know the story arcs. Why would you trust me? (laughs) If you're watching a show with me, you're watching a movie with me and I haven't seen it, don't listen to me. Because I have no knowledge. I have no knowledge of what's coming. I have no knowledge of what's going to happen. I'm not a prophet. (laughs) But the Lord does have knowledge. He is a prophet. He knows the Lord's will and he reveals it to us. He's not just guessing based on patterns he's seen before. He's not just extracting something, some information based on his earthly knowledge that he's had while he's alive. No. Again, judge a prophet by his predictions and all of the Lord's come true. Time and time again, what the Lord says and what the Lord shows us in Scripture, it comes to happen. It comes to fruition. It comes true. Now, you can find many different applications of many different prophecies and miracles, and certainly Jesus does know what we will find when we go into a new city, and so we can trust him with our lives, yes. And certainly Jesus can help uh, calm the storms of our lives, Because yes, he did use his words to calm a storm. Peace, be still. And they listened, and they obeyed. So yes, he can calm the storm of our lives, but if the sea hadn't stopped, if the weather hadn't stopped, why would we trust him? But his word comes true. And if Jesus was not raised from, our, from the dead, then we are still in our sins and trespasses. But he did. He did come back from the grave. So just as Jesus tells his disciples where and how to prepare the Passover, we see him preparing to go to the cross. He's told them what, what must take place, and it will. It will in the weeks to come as we study together. So he has been raised from the dead. And for that, we ought to say hallelujah, amen, because it's true. And his word is faithful and true. 
So we'll end with this last same question. Who will you fear? Will you fear man? Or will you put your trust in the world and the flesh and leave the door open for Satan? Or will you trust in the Lord? The God whose word has been true from the beginning is calling you. Take a lesson from Judas. Hold fast to the Lord. Hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the truth. Trust in him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, your word is true. And we can marvel at that. Marvel that the things that you have told us, the things that you have prophesied, do come true. So thank you for the truth of who you are, the truth of your word, that not only did you find a man carrying a jug of water, but it is true that we have life eternal with you. So Father, help us to trust in you. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.